Hey boys and girls, welcome back to a big episode of the Carnage House Productions. Today I've got with me a military man, a newly established author, and a man currently on the campaign trail for the Australian Conservatives, Ricardo Basi. How are you? Outstanding, thanks Dougal. Uh, why don't we, before you begin, we have a very Trump sympathetic audience, um, one of the only Trump sympathetic audiences in Australia. <clears throat> Why don't you tell us about your new book, Greatness Awaits You, The Five Pillars of Real Leadership, and tell us the dedication. Sure. Uh, These are words that I found in uh, a 1952 edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, and I think it's apt, and I'll read it in full, because I think you'll like it. The heroes of history and poetry may be cruel, violent, self-seeking, ruthless, intemperate, and unjust, but they were never cowards. They do not falter nor give way. They do not despair in the face of almost hopeless odds. They have the strength and the stamina to achieve whatever they set their minds and wills to do. They would not be heroes if they were not men of courage. This is the very meaning of heroism, which gives the legendary heroes almost the stature of gods. This book is dedicated to President Donald J. Trump, 45th President of the United States of America, who in time will be known as one of the United States' most heroic presidents. And I thought that summed up the Big Don perfectly. Big Don, it does. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, Boys and girls, we're going to return to the book at the end and um, see what Ricardo has written in it. But to start off, I want to talk about the Australian Conservatives Party. Now, this is the party that was started by um, Corey Bernardi, um, why don't, when he split off from the Liberal Party, and it was a split that was kind of founded in ideological grounds, if mm. I'm correct, why don't you kind of run us through the foundation story of the Australian Conservatives? Sure. It was a long time coming because the, um, the Australian polity had been drifting left for decades. And most of us sort of sit back and think, no, I'll be okay, I can, I can see things are a bit wrong but somebody will take care of it. But what we didn't notice was that it was drifting and drifting and drifting and drifting. It eventually got to the point where it was clear that elements of the Liberal Party were now Labor. Labor were now communists and the Greens were insane. And so it's not so much that Corey left the Liberals, the Liberals left Corey. Now that's not entirely fair because there is a, a rump of good conservative Liberals still in the party desperately trying to hold ground. But the forces dragging the Liberals to the left are almost insuperable. Almost, because we can bring the country back. And so Corey eventually said, you know, enough's enough. Um, And he knew he'd take a hit in his popularity for an apparent act of betrayal. And I can understand that. But on the other side, it wasn't so much he betrayed the party, but the party betrayed him. And the party betrayed their voters and their supporters. And the evidence was uh, that they left in droves. The, the, uh, The membership just didn't turn up with their donations. They didn't turn up with their time. They had to pay people to hand out how to vote cards. So that's evidence that what Corey did actually struck a chord, not with everybody, but with enough. And so the principles that that Corey was trying to defend were classic liberal Menzies-type principles, foundational issues that have stood the test of time. A mum and dad make the best family. Now, it's not the only family, but it's the best family. On a a 93-point checklist of of how kids do best, a natural mum and a natural dad do best. Um, Our Christian Judeo heritage... The very foundations of, of what we think is normal and natural is that. And yet people think that we can do away with that, and they are just naturally good people. You know, everybody thinks they're good people because they're born good people. It's not true. They were born in a society, and somebody quite rightly said, Australia and the West is running on the fumes of Christianity. And it is. Because if you look at any of the, um, the civilizations or, or political structures that have removed Christianity from them, Nazism... Communism, Islam, they're all murderous societies. It, it, it attracts the basis instinct of men. Men have two parts. We have the, the animal and the divine. And you see what happens when you remove the divine from our foundational thoughts. So this was the, this was the foundation that, that Corey was hanging on to. And he wanted to hang on to that and give someone, give everyone a place to go that still believed in these foundational issues. Okay. Um, I would tend to agree with you. Uh, Mr. Bernardi, but what would you say to the idea that um, kind of these nice Christian societies or Judeo-Christian societies that we like uh, have might, might have only been around for the last two or three hundred years while Christianity has been around for 2,000, would you still say then that um, 
Christianity is uh, an essential piece of, of a good society, considering it the bridged. fact that some of those older societies weren't very nice. Societies are never nice. That, that's the point. People think that you know, you've, got a, you've got two choices here. Uh, the noble savage, Rousseau's noble savage, or, or the Hobbes, Hobbesian world where life is brutal and short. Well, I've lived and worked in enough places where life is brutal and short, and it's just nothing like Australia. We're the aberration here. Australia and the West is not normal, if you take a global, a global picture. Um, well, what do you think is it about Christianity that might make uh, a society that people like to live in? Really simple. And, and, and you, know what, you know what the enemy fears most by what they attack most vigorously. And the two things that the socialists and everybody else wants to attack is the natural family and Christianity specifically. And now why is that? It's a really good question. And the answer is really simple. Because in Christianity, every one of us, everyone out there, every one of you, is worth exactly the same as the man or woman next to you. Exactly the same in God's eyes. So if everyone is of equal value then life is intrinsically valuable. And if life is intrinsically valuable, then they can't attack it. But what they want to do is they want to remove that, that issue that life is intrinsically important in and of itself. It doesn't matter who you are. There's no slaves, there's no kings, it's, you're, you're all equal. And, so that when, and here's the danger. This is where people don't see the danger. It creeps in. They're very subtle, the socialists. And we'll talk about that later. There are five threats facing the country, and socialism is one of them. But they're very, very clever because if they can convince us that uh, they can take our property, which they have, and they can take our liberty, which they have, and the last one is they can take our lives, and they do that with full-term abortion. And this is now legal in Australia, in Tasmania, Victoria and Queensland. Full-term abortion up to the moment of birth mm. is legal. Mm. Look it up. Don't believe me. It's frightening. You're paying for it. So they can take life at the beginning of life and they can take life at the end of life with euthanasia. So if they have some sort of utilitarian approach, then life is nothing. And so if your property, your liberty and your life can be taken by government, mm. what's left? Mm. Nothing. Not very much. I think you're going to be preaching to the choir today. Good. Um, we, love, <laughs> uh, we love some small government talk, some limited government. Um, on the Australian Conservatives website, I think, the, it, it, I think it's the first principle, mm. um, is is limited, limited government. Um, and when you talk about liberty and freedom, uh, what is it you mean by that? And why do you think that's important? It comes back, there's a nice segue from the last point. The, author, the government's authority comes from us. And when I do my talks, it's, it's uh, quite revealing. There's a young barmaid at a, uh, an RSL where I did a talk, and she said, but I'm just a barmaid. And I said, no, you are the authority from which the government derives its power. Mm. And these are words she's never heard before. She is the authority. It's her money and her vote that puts somebody like Morrison or Shorten into power. Now, Morrison and Shorten, there's nothing special about them. I met these people. They're actually not very, you know, not people I'd have around to dinner is the nicest way I can do it. Right. But they are nothing special. They are just somebody that's got your money and your vote. And, and the question is, why do we keep doing it? Why do we keep sending these people back? It's nuts. But authority and small government is your question. Authority is derived from each individual person. And that's a revolutionary concept because for, for most of human history, a king or a queen has ruled by divine provenance. And somebody said, hang on a minute, each one of us, a Christian virtue, each one of us is intrinsically valuable and authority for government comes from the people, not the other way around. Socialists and our current political class believe they are special. Authority comes from them and we just meekly turn up for our work assignments. Well, it's not true. So small government means we take as much power from the government as possible. We allow people to become as self-reliant as possible. And there's practical things we do, like tax. Give everybody a tax cut. Reduce taxes to the absolute bare minimum to run what the government should run and leave people alone to do what they want. You want to help out Jacko and Norell out there who are working two and a half jobs trying to save for a, a, a house, put their kids through school and just have a decent life? Give them a tax cut. Stop giving money, $91 million to Hamas. Insane. Half a billion dollars to some tiny Great Barrier Reef organisation because, you know, Malcolm said so. It's insanity. The money's there. Australia's as rich as can be. It's got everything it needs to be a genuine powerhouse. Despite our small population size and terrific uh, geographic size, we could be a genuine world power. We could afford everything. So small government... Get government to do what they are intended and designed to do and what we authorise them to do. The US, for example, limits their government constitutionally. We don't have that. 
but I can understand the attraction of telling the government what they are allowed to do, and every, everything else resides in the, in the hands of the people. So small government means self-reliant population, and government does what it does. It's supposed to do best. You know, protect the military, our sovereignty, for example. Uh, the rule of law, enforcing contracts, hard, measurable, practical stuff. Mm. Okay, fantastic. I, I like what I'm hearing. Two of the biggest uh, expenditures that the government has these days would be on public education and healthcare. Mm. Um, the, the free marketeers would suggest that both of those things would, uh, would have, in healthcare and education, would have better outcomes for the people uh, if they were totally privatised. Mm -hmm. um, now, I haven't made up my own mind on those two questions. What, what would your response be uh, for public education and public health care? Okay. Let's say the free marketeers, the absolute free marketeers are right. They're not, and I'll explain that why in a minute. But let's say they are right. Just to take to transition from point A to point B, you're dealing with lives and livelihoods. You just can't turn off the tap and say, look after yourself, folks. It's up to you. That's mm -hmm. just insane. You know, we are a sovereign nation. We're not inputs to somebody's economic model. That's part of it. But we're a sovereign nation. And once again, the power comes from the people. So if you wanted to transition to a, a more self-reliant model where the people are more responsible for their health care, that means money, and more responsible for the education of children, and that means money, that's fine. But you need to transition in a measured way that brings everybody with you so you don't lose people. Point number two, some, there's always going to be a part of the community that is just incapable of looking after themselves. For a whole range of reasons. Legitimately, they just need help. And it's about, believe it or not, 7 to 10% in my estimation, and they just need to be looked after, and we can't leave them behind. So there has to be some element of safety for those that are incapable. Now, unfortunately, there's a bunch of lazy buggers that pretend to be incapable, and they want their, their hand out saying, give me more. Well, no, 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 that's not the way it works. Because every dollar that we give them, it doesn't come from the government, it comes from somebody else. Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point, and Jordan Peterson... Um, I know Joel's a big fan. A quick shout-out to Joel's mum who organised this. We had him on the podcast uh, last week. But Jordan Peterson says that I think it's the US military, and you might, you might uh, know more about this than I do, has uh, an IQ level, an IQ cutoff mm. for, um, for people it takes in to join the army, to be like kind of rank-and-file soldiers. And I think the number, it's, I think it's 72 or 82, but basically 82. But basically there's a cutoff number which says that if you have an IQ under 82, any task we give you is you're actually not going to perform it in, in any legitimate way or any way that will actually improve um, you know, the state of the task at the, from the point at which we gave it to you. Um, so what that means in real life, in a normal society, I guess, is that those people just don't have the mental capabilities to perform a job well enough, I guess, that they can earn a decent income, mm. potentially, right? Um, and so that speaks to the point that there might legitimately be people who can't look after themselves. Um, and I guess then it's, it's a kind of tough, tough divide between how much do you provide because then you also get the people who kind of pretend, um, but then you also get the people who need the help. Hmm. Um, but so would you, what, what would your policy be, let's say, or what would your preferred policy be for education and healthcare in Australia? Well, let's just finish the healthcare off, or the supporting those that can't help themselves. Hmm. Charities for, for decades have done fantastic work. Sheltered workshops, they used to be called. Now a term of derision, but in those days it was a place where those who couldn't look after themselves could contribute meaningfully to an organisation. Uh, packaging, and, and, uh, packaging and sending off parcels, for example. There's a good right. example here in Sydney. And uh, companies that genuinely employ the disadvantaged can be given tax breaks. And there's, 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 there's the human dignity in that. And these, these people love the fact that they... Uh, they work, they earn a pay, and their independence is, is uh, ensured. So there are ways the government can, can cut these organisations, genuine ones, not the, not the shysters of which there are plenty, uh, give them a, a tax break, for example, so to allow them to uh, employ these people and give them um, some dignity in their work. And it reflects upon us. It, it's good for the Australian soul to know that we, we don't leave anybody behind. That's a very military thing. You never leave your mate behind. If he's down, you go back, you pick him up and carry him out of battle. It's the same thing with, with people in society. Now, in terms of education, it's interesting. Uh, there's a story which your, your viewers may or may not know. Most of the education in Australia was originally religious education, and then Henry Parks decided, you know what, we should uh, have public education. But it was never intended to replace private. 
But eventually uh, the money was being paid to public schools and they said, okay, we'll do that, no problem. And the private schools, and they weren't wealthy people, these are just uh, religious people who had no more pennies to rub together than anybody else, but they used to pay for their own education. And there seemed to be an imbalance. And then uh, when Menzies was in power, um, the point that it was inconsistent that the, the, the people paying school fees, say, say for a, a Catholic school, they were paying school fees and tax, and the tax was paying for the public education. They said, look, this isn't fair. We're, we're paying twice. Mm. And Canberra said, well, we don't care. <laughs> mm. And so the archbishop, I think it was down in, um, in Goulburn, said, right, you want to take care of education? And he closed down all the, all the, uh, the schools in Goulburn and sent all the kids to the public schools. And, of course, the system completely overloaded and broke. Right. And they made the point. It, it lasted some weeks, the strike. And then eventually the government said, you're right, OK, tell you what, we'll give you some money for the, to, to uh, assist you, the, the, the private schools, simply because your people are paying twice. Mm. Now, that's a good model. Uh, the public schools, we, we pay for public education, which is a good thing. Those that want a, uh, a, a private education, and generally because of the quality of the education or the religious beliefs, that's why it exists, uh, they should be assisted because the, gov- the, uh, the country cannot afford to educate every child in the, in the country. And we are so, you know, those, that are, those of us that send our kids to private schools are subsidising the others. Um, now, the policy we do have, which is critical, is we want to introduce vouchers. So parents get a voucher that they can spend in any school and any locations. At the moment, you're compelled, if you want to go to a public school, you're compelled to go to a particular school in a particular area and you have to accept whatever that school gives you. And some of these schools are not good. Now, there's some dedicated teachers, so don't go tearing your party dresses or running around with your hair on fire. There's some excellent dedicated teachers and principals. They really are. It's fantastic. But some of the things they're being taught in these schools is nonsense. That's the, that's the curriculum. And secondly, um, some of the teachers are just bloody awful. And parents, and I'm in this situation now, I'm looking at some of the schools and thinking I need to send my kids to additional uh, tutoring because the schools can't manage it. So if you give each individual a voucher, then the parent can choose the school. Now, here's the marketplace entering into education because a good principal with good teachers will attract like a magnet a ton of people that want to turn up. And so they turn up with their voucher. Instead of it going from the government to the school, it goes from the government to the parents. They turn up, the principal says, wow, we've got 100 more kids this year than last year. We've got the money, we can build more facilities. And the school that isn't delivering quality education, and it's hard and measurable, there's nothing ideological about this. You know, kids in Kazakhstan can read and write better than our kids. They can add up better than our kids. There's something wrong with that. If you, if you can't produce the results, you fail. And so that school starts to lose its, um, its uh, child population, the student population. Mm-hmm. And so something has to be done about it, so they need to fix it. So this is the way the marketplace can solve the standards of teaching in Australia, reward those who can, and penalise those that just aren't... Uh, they're taking money under false pretences. Well, I think that's a great idea because it would introduce competition and I think that would generally elevate the standard of education. Um, but do you think that would change uh, the amount of money that gets invested into public education um, overall? Because it is quite expensive. And if you want to reduce taxes, would you support cuts to public education? Or how would you... Not initially. Once again, there's a time factor we've got to introduce here. Mm. If philosophically we are spending too much on education, if we are, then we need to reduce it. I don't think we're spending too much or too little. I just think it's badly spent. Okay. So the first thing we need to do is make sure we start getting better results... And then we get to see where the short, the uh, where we're short and where we're over. But the first issue is results. Let's get the vouchers out. Let's see who performs. Let's get the standards up, and then we can re- redirect the money we've got. Because the money at the moment, they keep saying, "Give us more money, give us more money," and, and we give them more money, and what happens? Mm. Standards drop. Look, think about it. The teachers' union, they're involved in curriculum. Why? A teachers' union is there to protect the teachers. It's not nothing to do with curriculum. Do they have the skills to do a curric- to advise a curriculum? Of course they do. But their primary interest, and it should be, is to protect the teachers. But the curriculum in the hands of the unions is insane. It's completely insane. Because the union's perspective will be less hours, more money, or fewer hours, more money. That's not the purpose. We want kids that have an objective capacity to read, write, to think critically, to to function in the world as as well-balanced adults. Yeah, yeah. Um, One final question on this is just that I think tax cuts would be great, 
and, and I'm attracted to tax cuts, but with tax cuts, you usually have to accompany them with spending cuts, right, to pay for it. Absolutely. Do you, have you identified any areas where you would foreign like to affairs. see spending cuts? Foreign affairs. Hmm. Absolutely, foreign affairs. We need uh, a foreign affairs budget that directly protects Australia and her interests. $91 million to Hamas does not protect Australia and her interests. It's kowtowing to the Islamists, to a terrorist organisation. Oh, there's plenty of money there, and, and, and foreign affairs would be one. Social security is another, because we know that there's a, a massive rorting going on with social security. It's our single biggest problem. Uh, are, are there investigations? Yeah, a few. Nothing substantive. But that's where the rorts are happening, social security. And this isn't cutting, This isn't once again, just so we're clear, this isn't cutting current entitlements, which may be cut later or may be enhanced later. It depends on how, we, how we're looking at it. But the current, it's a, it's a black hole. And I challenge anyone to describe in detail exactly where the money's going because they don't know. Well, there was the policy. Um, I don't. I, I can't remember exactly the details, but where people who were on social security were given like a special card, mm. and that card said that you can't spend this at like it wouldn't be accepted at like a, an alcohol shop. Mm. You couldn't use it to buy cigarettes. I think you could only basically use it to buy groceries and That's right. maybe a couple of other things. Is that something like that you would like to see? I think it's a fantastic idea. And then underneath that, there's a deeper problem. I remember. This was when I was back in Adelaide. Um, the northern suburbs of Adelaide, there were sort of second, third, by now probably fourth generation unemployed. Mm. And I was assisting a, a recruitment firm and they were attempting to get people out of long-term unemployment and into the workforce. There was one young bloke there, mid-twenties, married with a child, his mother living at home. And he turned up late one morning and said, oh, look, I have to leave, I can't do this program anymore. And, and we asked him why. And he said, oh, my mother's given me grief. She said, you should be at home helping your wife out just like your dad helped me. Because he was unemployed and the granddad was unemployed and the granddad was unemployed. So that's normal for them. So you can't say to a kid like that, imagine the pride you'll feel when you get your first paycheck. And he's going, what the hell are you talking about? I've never had a paycheck. Dad never had a paycheck. And granddad never had had a paycheck. We just went to Centrelink, as it's now called. It was called something else earlier. And we got our money. And we did nothing for it. See, unless you earn, unless you pay for it, you don't you don't uh, value it. It's it's human nature. If you get it for nothing, it must be worthless. If it's extremely expensive, well, I value that. So yes, it's not just the money. It's dragging these these poor folk who have been consigned to economic slavery uh, out of that and getting them out of long term unemployment. And that's that can be uncomfortable for some, but that's the way we've got to do it. Um. Ricardo, why don't you tell us about bursting the Canberra bubble? What do you see as the Canberra bubble? What do you think it would take to burst it? Uh, previously on, on the Carnage House, we have like a little segment where we jump to conclusions and then we defend <laughs> it at the end. In honour of the wives and girlfriends, we jump to conclusions without evidence and we maybe defend them at the end. Um, one of my conclusions was that we should um, move the capital from Canberra to Penrith uh, and Alexander, my older brother, then said yeah, we should, he, he partly supported it but said we should move it to the Tanami Desert uh, in kind of the, the similar vein of bursting the Canberra bubble. Now, what would your, what, what's your identification of the bubble and how to fix it? Well, I've had one addition to that. I'd move the ABC. I'd sell the Ultimo buildings because yeah. they're worth a packet and that, that can help retire debt and we can move them into rented accommodation in Lakemba next door to the mosque. Yeah, I think it'd be great to see Tony Jones and his bride turning up to work there every day. But on a serious note, what am I saying that is serious? The Canberra bubble. Um, When Corey talks about the Canberra bubble, the people down there are so insulated from the consequences of their decisions that they make them and smile and move on. Mm. And it's infuriating. Just down here, every day I'm in traffic. I'm paying a $10 toll for the privilege of sitting on a a 15-kilometre car park. Yeah. And... I don't get cranky at the other cars, and I don't get cranky, I get cranky at the Prime Minister mm. and his predecessor and their predecessor and the predecessor because of the nonsense. They make a decision in Canberra because it suits their numbers. It's a Ponzi scheme. And then down here, the state has to deal with the consequences of it. Yeah. So they keep pumping people in, and it's, and it's insane. They are immune for the con- from the consequences of their decisions. So there's a couple of things we need to do, and, and, and the, go to the website if you want the detail. But things like term, uh, term limits, no more professional politicians mm. you know you build, hey, absolutely bill whittle uh, one of my favorite u.s political commentators said you could go to the phone book and pick out 150 random names and they'd do a better job than the current collection of shysters we've got down there 
because they just it's a gravy train. Now there's a handful of, of, of um, exceptions to this rule, but the role of politicians is to get in, funnel money from the taxpayers' pockets to their mates, and then after five, ten, year, twenty years of doing that, they get out and they get a job with you know, megacorp, mm. and that's the role that they play. They have no idea of the consequences of their decisions. Mm. So term limits, um, the super fund, the, the gold-plated super funds. No, you look after your own super like everybody else. Why, why, why special case for politicians? You, know, you should you should go in uh, and do your work, get compensated adequately for it, and then you get out like any other job. Mm. There's a degree of it's a vocation. There's a degree of selflessness in this in this cause than in other jobs. But I can tell you what I spent 24 years in the army, and there's a whole lot more selflessness going on there for a whole lot less money. Mm. Uh, and our police could take a good leaf out of the uh, the ADF's book and look mm. at the conditions under which they operate and the service they give. Nothing special about police. Okay, one more, one, one interesting point before we move on to uh, the military. Sure. Is that uh, actually when the Harbour Bridge was built, you go on the Harbour, Harbour Bridge today, especially at Peter, <coughs> it's bumper to bumper, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's like Chinese drip torture, the way you sit there and slowly move, especially if you're in a manual car like I am. Um, but when the Harbour Bridge was actually built, it was built to actually have a second deck underneath. Mm. So that when traffic reached peak capacity like it has today, they would just put the second deck in and cars could go uh, mm. on the second deck. Now, the problem was, was that once it got time to put the second deck in, uh, the bridge's um, the kind of structure was it wasn't strong enough to support it. But the thing I take from it is that forward-thinking government planning, which you just don't really see today. Uh, you just see this kind of, how do I get, how do I win the next election, or, or how do I <laughs> not get the next news poll um, you know, yeah. to go against me? Um, and, and so I, I'd love to see that forward planning. I just thought it was a pertinent point on the traffic because that affects me every day. Yeah. Um, just on that, sorry, yeah. sorry to jump in, but forward planning. Under Sydney right now, the canny Scottish, Scottish engineers that did the tunnels for the railway, we have kilometres of tunnels down there unused. Yeah. They planned ahead and they're all under there. Wow. So we haven't had forward planning for, since Bradfield, mm. since... since um, and we can talk about Bradfield. He planned a, uh, a series of dams from the Tully River in the north all the way down to green central Queensland, and we can continue it down to, con- to green um, New South Wales. So and my wife that? came up with a couple of good ideas, put some micro uh, whirlpool uh, electricity generators. Each one can generate enough electricity for a small town. Here's, here's an environmental policy for the Conservatives. What do plants need? Food and water. So we're going to have more CO2 because of more coal-fired power stations. We're going to dam as many rivers as we can. And you'll get water flying all the way from Tully. Mm. And in the military, I've slept in six inches of water up in Tully because it's so bloody wet. And there's a secret to it, I'll tell you. But the water gets all the way down to the harbours in South Australia, so everybody gets the water they need. The boaties get it as far south as, um, as Adelaide, or south of Adelaide. And all the farmers get as much water as they need. It's doable. They just don't want to do it. And just on that, I know you didn't ask the question, but let me throw this one in for free. The greenies, whenever you put a policy up, they go, oh, no, don't worry about the cost. No, no, the cost, the cost. Don't worry about the cost. It's a, you know, Think of the children. Think of the trees. Think of the walrus. And the one policy they, won't, they, raise, they say costs too much is damming the rivers from Tully and South. And they go, oh, no, we can't do it. It costs too much. Yeah. You know why? Because they know it would put them out of a job because there would never be another drought in Queensland there would no, never be another drought in New South Wales. And we've got the money and we can do, do it now. And as I say, you put the generators down there, you've got hydroelectricity all the way down. And then they say, oh, what about the Aboriginal artefacts? Oh, dear me. Great. Subsurface dams, they've got them. Reservoirs, they build them overseas already. It's all, it's all doable. There's no evaporation. It all works. It can all be done. Well, we love that. We love thinking outside the box. And you heard it here first from um, Carter Bosey of the Australian <laughs> Conservatives. But it would be, I would get a lot of angry messages. Sure. I would get a lot of angry messages if I just skipped to the military question without um, talking to you about um, the CO2 plant food comment. Sure. Do you have, um, I'm, I'm, again, uh, I'm very happy to admit there's a lot of things I don't know about. Sure. Um, I, I haven't made up my mind on climate change, partly because there are members of my family who are uh, some very famous climate change deniers. Mm. Um, but, you know, I was kind of raised in a school system which, which has uh, climate change as kind of an accepted truth. Mm. Um, the UN very much accepts climate change uh, as kind of a truism. Uh, and with that, would, 
with the, the kind of flow-on effect is that CO2 is, is we, want le- we want less CO2, not more, is kind of the environmental instinct mm. um, that at least a lot of the listeners would have. What would sure. you say? What would you say to that? And what would the climate change policy be of the Australian Conservatives? Uh, none. We don't have one. Because, uh, cli- because anthropogenic global warming is complete nonsense. The surface temperature of Mars is rising. Do they have a lot of cows farting or heavy industry there? No, it's called the sun. And we have cycles. We have cycles. This is quite not. This is this is one of the warmest period in um, in in the cyclical human history. It's going to get freezing cold in about five thousand years. But this is quite normal. This is nothing we're doing. This is like a flea deciding that it's 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 affecting the cow. It's not doing a thing. You've been lied to. I, and I, I'm sorry, but you've been lied to because I'm old enough to remember the the uh, the ice age scare of the seventies. We're all going to die because of the ice age. It's just reaction, action, reaction, action, reaction. They just create drama. They lie to us. They are lying. And the moment you mentioned the UN, goodness me, let me, let me give you a UN story. I was up in uh, Newcastle, and this used to be the, the beating industrial heart of, of Australia. Mines, steel, heavy industry. You know, we were so self-reliant. There was work and there was productivity and value and money and schools and art and everything that comes from, from, from a, a good Western industrialised society. And I was up there some weeks ago talking to a crowd. And I said, look, one of your big challenges is the UN. And I knew what I'd get. I'd get this, the, the glazed-over looks of uh, Jacko and Norrell from Newcastle saying, what the, what the hell's the UN got to do with us? Mm. And that's a good question. I explained to them. I said, did you know that your mayor, the mayor of Newcastle, in I think it was 2016, you can check the dates if you like, 2016, I think, went to Geneva to sign a, a compact with the UN to say, we are now a UN local council. There's this global network of councils. And, um, and and then the UN representative came to Newcastle and he signed a, a document in Newcastle. It's all in the papers. You can look it up. And uh, they're now going to donate something like half a billion dollars over 10 years to the university to establish a climate and disaster relief capability. Mm. And that's very exciting, except that doesn't provide work for Jack O'Norell and their kids. Mm. doesn't provide for the schools. The university does well, but they don't. And then the, the Lord Mayor, and by, bear in mind there is no constitutional role for a council, a local government council in Australia. It's, it's, a, it's a fictitious thing that was created to collect rubbish. And here they are, the UN is bypassing the, state, the federal government and the state government going straight to this unconstitutional body. And this unconstitutional body proudly said, our city's strategic plan, and everyone's got a strategic plan, is lifted directly from the United Nations. And those cowards in Canberra and the cowards in, um, in Sydney say nothing about the, 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 the abrogation of responsibility for the leadership of the country. It's going straight from the UN to UN, uh, the uh, Newcastle City Council. And these people in front of me were horrified. The UN, the UN is lying to you. The UN is run by, and here's some background for you kids, the largest voting bloc in the UN is called the OIC. The organization, of, the organization of Islamic Cooperation, 57 member states, and they run the UN. They say we're voting on this, and that's why Israel gets kicked in the ghoulies, you know, once a week, every week, for human rights abuses, where you've got Saudi and Qatar and Bahrain and all these other countries uh, stoning adulterers, rape victims, basically, throwing gays off buildings, and they're on the Human Rights Council. Anything that comes out of the UN is utterly suspect. And if, look, they've got a lovely blue flag, and if you want to believe in Kumbaya, then great, but don't do it with the UN because they're a bunch of crooks. Mm. Okay, great. Love that. Now, this is, this is a, a topic, our next topic, the military, is one that you would have particular <clears throat> expertise in. Sure. You spent how long in the military? 24 years. And what was your service comprised of? Where did, what, what did you do? Okay, I served in... Um, a number of fighting regiments as well as staff positions and training positions. You've got three types of jobs. I was in the, uh, the Royal Australian Regiment, 2nd 4th Battalion, uh, which was light infantry, which means you carry your house on your back. There's nothing light about carrying 60 kgs on your back. Then I was in the 5th 7th Battalion, which is mechanised infantry, which is far more comfortable because you've got an armoured personnel carrier to carry your, uh, your food and water and ammunition. I also spent time in the Special Air Service Regiment in Perth, one of the Special Ops uh, Regiments, and also the 1st Commando Regiment. Okay. As Very well, nice. as well as uh, you know, stints in Army headquarters, headquarters special operations, uh, 
Uh, I was in the Combined Joint Task Force Q8 as the Australian Liaison Officer and National Commander. We had a, an SAS squadron deployed over there, so I worked to the US General. Um, that was exciting. Well, before we get into the military, we should just extend on behalf of our audience a quick thank you. Most of us will never really, uh, will never join the Army and will never really even see the Army. Um, but our, our lives are definitely, um, we definitely benefit from having the Army there. Um, I assume you guys go through a lot of stuff that we couldn't really imagine that lets mm. us do our day-to-day stuff. So I think it's good usually to pay a tribute of, of thanks and respect. Um, so on behalf of the Carnage House uh, audience, we'd like to say thank you. Um, and now we want to talk about the military. Um, why don't you tell us what you think uh, the state of the military is, um, what's good, what's bad, and what needs to be done? Okay. There's some good plans to uh, enhance our capability to deliver, le- de- deliver lethal force against the enemy. And you've got to remember that's what the Army, Navy, and Air Force are there to do. We're there to kill people. That's it. Now, clever military leadership will shape a, a battlefield to minimise the casualties and to convince the, the uh, adversary that it's time to go home. But that's just an approach because dip- diplomacy can do that. Trade can do that. Corruption can do that. But in the end, as, a, as a, a force of last resort, the government says, we need you to go over there and kill some people because there is no meeting in the minds. And if anybody believes that you know, we've, we've evolved beyond barbarism, uh, I hate to break your hearts, but you, you look at the world in one or two ways. Uh, war is the period between peace and pe- or peace is the period between war. And if you look at history, peace is the period between war. This is a brutal competition, has been since Cain killed Abel. That's what that's what life on this planet is. You've got to fight to survive. Now in Australia, we're a bit like like the dodos. The dodos became extinct because they had no natural predator, and they had no idea what a predator looked like. And the, the Portuguese sailors turned up on the island. The dodos wandered up and gobbled at them, and they just grabbed them by the neck and ate them. Mm-hmm. And in no time, they were um, they were extinct because they could not identify a threat. Now, extended periods of peace will do that to you. But when you've got a government and a mainstream media that won't tell you what's going on, you think life's fine. Well, it's not. And your audience, I'm, I'm hoping, is, is very, very savvy. And they get their news from somewhere other than the ABC. Mm-hmm. And they know there's slavery going on in, in northern Africa. You know, the, 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 the Muslims are running the slave trade all over again. Did it for 1,400 years. That's still continuing. You know, girls are getting raped in Pakistan and they get stoned for adultery. You know, this sort of nonsense. This mean. Let me quote my favourite American philosopher, Rocky Balboa. And I love this quote, and it's a ripper, because whoever writes it, it's not quite Shakespeare, but Jesus bloody close. And there's this scene where, <clears throat> excuse me, Rocky's talking to his boy who's, who's whining about how Rocky's comebacks and it caused him some embarrassment. And he says, and I hope I can get this right, let me tell you something that you already know. Life and all sunshine and rainbows. It's a mean and nasty place, and it'll beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You mean nobody's going to hit as hard as life. But it's not how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you want, then go out and get it. But you've got to be willing to take the hits. Now, unfortunately, what we've got in Australia is a population that's not willing to take the hits. And a government less likely to do so. So all they do is they don't win. They don't, leadership's about winning. The purpose, it's in the book, yeah, yeah, free, free tip. The purpose of leadership is to win. And we've got a government that just manages decline, manages failure. We concede, we concede, we concede. Well, let me tell you what the rest of the world thinks about that. They laugh at us. Because what we think is an act of compassion they see is weakness. It's brutal out there. It's not nice. So the Defence Force has to be ready to deliver this lethal force on, on the say-so, but it has to be real and it has to be hard. The importance of deterrence cannot be underestimated. And the only way we do that is to have a, a defence force which is militarily intimidating. That means everybody to our north and east and west looks at us and go, don't touch the Aussies, because we'll cop a flogging like we did last time. And that's what we want in their heads, because mm. there's not nice people over there. Mm. You know, turn the other cheek isn't... It's not part of any other religion, I can tell you. And so they're nasty, and we've got to be hard back. Now, having said all of that, there are parts of the Defence Force that are developing capability very, very well. We're putting some high-tech stuff up. That's great. But what's undermining the military, and this is the cowardice of the air marshals, admirals and generals, in allowing uh, the, um, 
the soul of the military, what makes us different what, from civilians, basically, to be eroded to the point where it doesn't matter anymore. You know, the pink fingernail nonsense, the, uh, the calling people by different um, pronouns at the Defence Force Academy. It's insane. You know, I said it once before, if someone's going to be offended because they were called he or she, they're not optimised for war fighting. I mean, if that's going to send them around the twist, then they don't want to go into combat. And you don't have to experience it, don't you? Just read any book. It's nasty. It's hard. And so we're being betrayed at the, in the worst kind of way because the damage being done to the soul of the military is harder to fix. If they buy us the wrong piece of kit, diggers are great. They'll always find a way around the general's shortcomings. Always has been the way. But if they destroy what makes an Australian soldier a hard, tough person to beat, then we're in real trouble. And the, and the ADF needs to be cleaned out. The hierarchy has sold out. To, there's not a bollock amongst them. So you'd go through and clean them out, would you? That, that's what you'd like to say? You betcha. And I already I got asked this question the other day. <clears throat> what would you do? And I said, that's easy. I'd go see President Don mm-hmm. and say, Don, I've got, a, I've got a request that you might be able to help me with. I need a good four-star Marine, one that knows how to kick ass and take names. And we're going to give him a five-year contract and he can be the chief of the Defence Force and he's going to re-establish what used to be a professional Defence Force. Mm. Five-year contract, clean it out. Get them refocused on winning wars. And, and anything that doesn't contribute to increased lethality on the battlefield, and that's the metric that counts, nothing else matters. Better lethality than the enemy, that's his job, to get them back up to scratch. And then, over that five-year period, one or two or three or four or five of these... Uh, air marshals, admirals and, uh, and generals might de- demonstrate they have what it takes in here to lead a, a defence force for real. Mm. That's how I do it. Okay, that's fantastic. That's a pretty interesting idea and I think Don would be happy to help if you well, want to. when I meet him, I'll, I'll let you know. Let, it, should, let us know. We'd love, to, <laughs> we'd love to talk to someone who's met Don because we've got a lot of fans but not a lot of uh, real-life experience. So we've got a lot uh, of the Australian Conservatives and a little bit of Ricardo, that's, and that's where I want to take this now. We heard a little bit about your military experience. Um, why did you choose to go from the military into politics? Uh, I didn't, not from military to politics, I went from military okay. to business. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I got to the point where I was, I was a Lieutenant Colonel in Headquarters Special Ops, but I knew that I'd want to get out at some point, and I didn't know whether I wanted to go into um, a major corporate or become an entrepreneur. And the idea of going from one large lumbering organisation to another large lumbering organisation didn't thrill me, so I did some business courses. And this is while I'm still in the military. I, started, uh, I just started starting companies. So I'd get an idea, put some money into it, and see how it worked. And I did this over and over again. And so when and that, that was six years, I was in business for six years while I was in the military. And then when it came time to get out, I did, and it was fine. So it was an easy transition for me. Normally, it's quite it's quite challenging. And then so I consulted for um, I consulted for about uh, a few years on my own. I made a clean cut from the military rather than consult back to the military. I wanted to make sure I broke away so I could stand on my own two feet in business, which I did. Um, and then um, the trigger. If, I've always been interested in politics. You know, politics to me is better than a grand final. A, uh, an election is better than a grand final. But what happened was the actual trigger that pushed me over the edge was uh, my then wife and I. I better say this politely, but uh, we parted company, and I experienced the family law system. And you know, I thought no problem. I've heard horror stories, but no problem because I've lived a good life. I'm not a rapist and murderer and bad guy. I've done all the right things. So this should be easy. And I actually said to my wife, you know, look, you can have everything, including the superannuation. Just don't fight me for custody. 50-50 and we'll, and we'll call it quits. That's not how it went out. Because all of a sudden I realised that only 17% of the time the dad gets the child. And that's not right. I found that the perjury is no longer a crime in a family court. And so you can imagine the sort of allegations that get made. Stupid me just playing a straight bat, but I'm glad I did because that's the only way to do it. Long story short, eight years and about half a million dollars later, it's not like I had half a million dollars sitting around just waiting to improve some lawyer's uh, property portfolio. I finally got custody. And get this, I'm overseas, I'm in a Muslim country, it's a non-Hague convention, so there's no extradition, and I'm the father, and I got custody. But eight years, 
of the family court convinced me that the country I thought I was defending was no longer. The injustices being created by bad governments, exploited by... I'll be careful here. Certain members of the judiciary and the legal profession. Opened my eyes to a whole world. Uh, Australia wasn't the place I thought it was. It's, uh, and if, if people actually saw behind the curtain, they'd be horrified. They'd, they'd, have, they'd be there with torches and pitchforks ready to string up every politician they could see and judge and cop. And I'm not talking about the people at the, the bottom. You know, I'm talking about the elites. You've got the political elite. You've got the, the judicial elite. You have the constabulary elite. You have the media elite. And they think they're special. They genuinely think they're special. You've got judges that describe themselves, we're a new breed of progressive judges. They don't want to apply the law, they want to make the law, but they haven't got the testicles to stand for election. They want to do it from their bench. Well, I've got news for them. Stick to doing your job or you'll pay the price. Same with the coppers, the commissioners. Do your job or you'll pay the price. Because this, this nonsense about the elite running the country, that those days are now finished. There's a new sheriff in town. And I'm not going anywhere. Win or lose this election, I'm here for the next 40 years to fix the country. I took an oath a long time ago to defend Australia. That had no expiration date. Now, just because I'm no longer in uniform doesn't mean my desire to see this country. And here's my definition. is what I'm working for. And every word is carefully selected because it's pregnant with meaning. Australia is a sovereign, self-reliant Western democracy, which is economically powerful, militarily intimidating, politically free, culturally vibrant and socially cohesive. And every policy that comes across my desk, I run through that filter. And if it helps achieve that, it's in. And if it's the, to the least degree pulling away from that, then it doesn't get in. You know, sovereign nation, what does that mean? We don't bow to any foreign nation, including the UN, if it's not in our interest. See you later. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Economically powerful. We have to be so economically powerful that people come to us begging for deals. Multi-trade multi, multi -trade deals are rubbish. Bilateral's the only way to go. We get reciprocity, we'll do deals with you. We don't have reciprocity, go somewhere else. There's a big world out there to do business with. Big markets. Our government has intentionally set ourselves on a... Uh, we're bent over a barrel with China, where we have to do what China wants. Now I've got no problem with the Chinese. Well, I do. Some of their practices are a little abhorrent. But real life's real life. But if, uh, if it doesn't meet that criteria, then it fails. If it meets that criteria, then that's the policy we're going to run with. But honestly, Australia is stronger than it's ever been before. Genuinely stronger. Mm. Okay. Um, so the Australians, you've, you've said you want to do this for the next 40 years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so the Australian Conservatives are running two candidates for the New South Wales Senate at this election. Correct. Is that correct? So Sophie York... Uh, is number one on the ticket, you're number two. Correct. Um, what do you think your chances are of being able to get a seat at this election? If you look at it conventionally, near zero, but we've been running a, a canny campaign because the start-up uh, party has uh, no money, no resources and no time. <laughs> so we've had to do things a little, a little unconventionally, which suits me anyway, being a special ops guy, because conventional wars, you've got you know, battalions and brigades and divisions murdering each other and special ops we send five guys around the back and shoot the boss in the head and the job's done so we've been doing a bit of a canny uh, special ops let's say so if you ask any pundit they say we've got no chance I think we've got a, a very good sneaky chance of getting one in mm -hmm. so if we get Sophie in that's fantastic and that'll be the, the beginning the beginning of the crack okay, in the fantastic. system down there and you would like to continue to run as an Australian conservative uh, regardless oh absolutely oh yeah this, this, is, this war's not over this is not like um you know, Call of Duty Black Ops where you, you die 50 times, respawn and then turn it off and walk away. These bastards are coming after us 24-7. There are five threats facing us. China, Islam, socialism, the globalists and the pan-national corporations like Google and Facebook. They are genuinely destroying us. Different reasons. They all want to control the world for, for different reasons. China for national, they're, they're pursuing their national interests, which I, I don't blame them. They're pursuing their national interests. Good on them. Islam, because it's an ideology they've been pursuing for 1,400 years unbroken. Well, in fact, the caliphate only ended in 1924. So from the time of Muhammad in 622 to 1924, there's been a caliphate on the planet. So this is a temporary break for them, but they're doing it for ideology. The globalists, because they're, they're just um, sociopaths. 
They just think that they, they can see that they can run the world better than everybody else. Uh, you know, the corporations for a profit, nothing wrong with that. And the socialists because of their ideology. But I don't blame any of them. That's like you know, a soldier blaming the enemy for being the enemy. No, no, you don't blame the enemy for being the enemy. That's who they are. That's why you call them the enemy. I blame Canberra. I blame Morrison. I blame Shorten. I blame Gillard. I blame Rudd. I blame uh, Turnbull. Because from my perspective, these guys have sold us out. They are facilitating the destruction of the country. And what evidence do I have? Well, let me put it to you this way. You've got Dastayari, who was uh, giving tip-offs to Chinese donors that his phone was being bugged, and then everybody in the media and the parties go, oh, well, he's just a young man, he made a mistake, you know, he paid the price. No, that's an act of treason. He's a freaking adult. At the age of 22, I had 30 soldiers under my command. And this guy's an Australian senator, and he gets on the slap on the wrist. Give me a break. I'm no conspiracy theorist, but something stinks. And then you've got Andrew Robb, former Liberal minister, um, goes away with, you know, oh, I've had, I've had uh, mental problems, and then he retires on an $800,000 a year pay packet. Then you've got to the Chinese, and then you've got Bill, uh, not Bill, Paul Keating, recently said that we should clean out the security services to make them more friendly to China. And he's working as a director on some Chinese corporation. Now, there's no evidence of corruption. I'm not making allegations of corruption. But something stinks. So I don't blame the five threats. They're the threats you have to face, but I blame Canberra. Because unless we clean Canberra out, to get back to your very first question about the Canberra bubble, what we've got to do, clean them out. Just clean them out. Start voting for people you know, like, and trust. Don't vote for parties. Vote for someone you personally know, like, and trust to represent you. And it'll take time. This won't, this won't be fixed in two or three election cycles. That's why I said 40 years. We've got to rebuild the country from Canberra up, believe it or not. Uh, vote below the line for people you know, like, and trust who will represent you and your interests. Mm. That's how we do it. Well, there is, um, there is, there is uh, undercurrents, you know, uh, even in the Liberal Party. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Jim Mullen below the line is one of the strongest campaigns. He's my uh, number three so pick. Much. He and I are in direct competition, and they say to me, it's not smart, don't put Mullen on there because he'll take votes from you. It's not about being smart, it's about being right. It's about being good. And there's a great Martin Luther King quote. Um, actually, I want to read it because this is, this is important. I want your, 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 your viewers to get this right. Okay, those listening to us on the, uh, on the SoundCloud or the iTunes, Ricardo's just flicking through his book, Greatest Way to the Five Pillars of Real Leadership, to find the quote he's looking for. Okay, and this is, this is under the subheading of a moral people, and that's what we've got to become again. And every individual, if we do this, then we are unbeatable. Nothing can beat a moral people, ever. No army, no armament. And here's the quote from Martin Luther King. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular but one must take it because it is right. And that's where we are. If every individual in the country decides to start doing what is right, we've got a chance. Okay, beautiful. Now, before we finish up with the book, because I do want to talk about the book, and I, sure. want to, I want you to tell the audience why they should read it. I want to get a quick policy prescription for a few interesting issues. Sure, sure. Um, number one, should Australia do more to help Julian Assange? Absolutely. Man's a hero. Beautiful. That's, that's going to be a very popular opinion. I think there's a few people vote for you, just to say that. <laughs> um, marijuana legalisation. No, dumb as dog poo. Okay. Should, if Donald Trump puts boots on the ground in Venezuela, should Australia follow? Not an area of interest. Uh, what should Australia's position be towards China in the South China Sea? Stop the expansion and make sure it doesn't get any, uh, any better. And more importantly, start re-establishing our relations with uh, the Pacific Islands and nations so we are their preferred ally and not the men from the north. Okay, great. And the final one, we've almost we've, we've touched on a bit, but I just want to give you a 30-second synopsis of the Donald Trump presidency. Brilliant. Heroic. Not polite. Not presidential. He actually said he doesn't even know what presidential means and good on him because they didn't need it. He, there's a great line out of the, one of the Batman films. They didn't, they didn't get the one they wanted. They got the one they needed. There's no other man in history that could have done what he did because he is exactly what he is. And the more they said he was wrong, the more I knew he was right. In fact, 
we made a few thousand bucks. We put a lazy 1,000 down on him being elected, and we got it because yeah, we, nice. we, we knew it was going to happen because this, this was his time and place. And people were saying, well, he's not like everybody else, and we're saying, thank God for that mm. because there's this cabal between the left and the right. It's like the crime families in New York. They're both criminals. They're just, you know, who's going to get the sticks, the controls for the, for the next three years? No. Um, the numbers coming out of the U.S. are brilliant. Hispanic employment up, black employment up, food stamps down. All the economic indicators in a real practical human sense, quite apart from the, the, uh, the, st- the stock market and the NASDAQ, which are going through the roof, mm. but those hard human things, is doing brilliantly. But you won't know that in Australia because those that listen to the ABC, all they know is orange man bad, orange man bad, orange man bad. And when you ask them why, their heads explode. Well, it is absolutely true that... Um, well, Donald Trump now, as far as I'm aware, is at a 50 or 51% approval rate. Yeah, he's over 50%. Um, which is absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, but if you were to have another president uh, who had done the same economic management, they would be... Um, you know, the, me- the media would, would praise them to a totally different level. They would probably be given a Nobel Prize in economics, and, and that they would they would have they would, they would probably be remembered as the best president uh, in history. And um, so we do love Donald. We do love Donald. Um, <laughs> I don't know how well he'd fit in the uh, Conservative Party in terms of his his personal morality, but I think his policies would kind of line up uh, to some extent. Um, but let's finish with. Um, Greatness awaits you. The five pillars of leadership, leadership by Lieutenant Colonel Ricardo Bosi. First of all, what's the what are the five pillars? If if you're allowed to give that away, absolutely. It's like you're building a house. First, you put the slab down, and that's the foundation. It's one of the pillars. It's one of the foundation, and the foundation in any relationship is trust. And leadership is a relationship between the leader and the lead. So the foundation, the slab, is trust. That's why it's chapter zero. It's not chapter one. It's chapter zero. Right. Then the first pillar is your character. And, the, and the, the key word here is courage. It's not being nice, it's courage, because I can guarantee... And this isn't me speaking, this is Aristotle, the man who was known and the man who was described, the man who knew everything, Aristotle, right? Because ga- courage guarantees everything else. You can be the smartest guy, you can, it doesn't matter. If you haven't got the courage to think, say, and do what's got to be done, you won't, you won't achieve a thing in your life. Mm-hmm. So character and the first and the key word there is courage. The second pillar uh, is your capability. You've got to know your job. You've got to know your job. And knowing your job has a couple of parts. There's the skill and the will, and then there's you've got to know people. So there's the actual technical stuff that you know people. Because relationships, uh, leadership is a relationship. There's a great quote. You know, people, people ask me, what's, what's, how do you get into an elite level of anything? Well, having been in an elite level of special ops, I can tell you. There's always one special secret they need that you need to know. Now, in business, elite business people know the secret, and uh, David Rockefeller senior knew this, you know, founder of Standard Oil and philanthropist, he said, the ability to deal with people is as purchasable a commodity as sugar or coffee, and I'll pay for more for that ability than any other under the sun. So the ability to deal with people, to lead people. So there's the richest guy on the planet, and what's he looking for? The one quality? The ability to lead. And that's why it's critical. So forget whatever technical skill you've got. That's great. You know, be the best movie producer, be the best mechanic, be the best accountant. But when you're running a company... You, you, the, the skill you need is the ability to deal with people, which is leadership, and that's the second one. The third one is your invention. You've got to come up with something new. You've got to see the world and not just copy what everybody else is doing. You've got to come up with something new. Now, the secret here is if you're not naturally inventive or creative or you can't see the next best thing, that's fine. Just get somebody on your team who can. And that's how you've come up with the... Uh, and it's a great story with that. If we've got time, I'll tell you. But the third one is your invention. The fourth one is their empowerment. So now finally we're talking about the people that you want to lead. And it's all about empowering them. And the last one is you. So the foundation is trust. Then it's your your character, your capability, your invention, their empowerment, and you. And what people will notice is it's all about you. It's not about the people. When I consult the companies on leadership, which is what I do for a business, invariably they'll say, can you teach us how to get them to do what we say? And I just smile. I go, yeah, well, let's fix you up first and make you such an attractive leader. They'll be dying to do what you say. So make we okay with that? And that's the way you do it. It's not about barking orders. And you won't get any military-style leadership in this because military know nothing of leadership. They know a lot about command. Command is the lawful execution of authority. But leadership comes from here. And, the, and here's my definition. We'll finish with this. And this is key. 
because I've worked with a lot of great leaders and there are a lot of excellent definitions out there, but they're all inadequate. They'll never quite make it, so I had to come up with my own. And I've been in this game for over 40 years. And I finally came up with a definition I liked, and it's this. A real leader is one who uses nothing but what they are, nothing but what they are, to unite many to achieve good. And every word is, is very carefully selected. So it's not, you know, when I was a colonel, and I'd say, fellas, here's my plan, what do you reckon? Oh, no worries, Skipper, she's a ripper. Well, of course I'd say that. Mm. Because I can hire them, fire them, I can reduce them in pay, I can lock them up, and I've done all that in my career, I've had to. But when you're nobody other than who you are and you say, here's my plan, and people go, great, let's go, boss, now you're leading. That makes sense? Mm. And the second bit is you've got to unite people. And the third bit is you've got to achieve good. There's got to be a moral quality. Otherwise, it's not leadership, it's something else. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much for for coming on. Um, I'm sure the guests appreciate it. I appreciate it. I've had a great time. Um, Good luck with your campaign, sir. Good luck with the book. I'm, you know what, uh, this is a, we've talked about it before, but we haven't quite executed it yet. Start doing book reviews. This might be a good one to do our first book review of. Uh, so if you'd like that, let us know in the comments down below. Let us know what you thought about Ricardo Bosi and let us know what you thought. think about the Australian Conservatives. Is it a party that you'd like to follow? Is there something you'd like to clarify or something, you know, something, some suggestions? You know, we'd love to hear it. Um, Thanks for coming on, Ricardo. Hopefully you can uh, come on again sometime in the future. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Dougal. And have a great life, kids. Okay. See you later. Bye-bye.